Today, I need to share some very sad news with you. One of our most beloved faculty members, Rick Searfoss, passed away on September 29th. This was shocking news to all of us who knew him well. Rick was only 62 years old, and he might have been our most in-shape faculty member. Rick worked out religiously and climbed the 14ers behind his house every day. Because he was an active test pilot for the U.S. military, he received regular physicals. In short, we all thought Rick was immortal. That's why it was so shocking when I came across the article on Flipboard about his death. We posted that article at heartofleaderspodcast.com for you to read. It goes into great detail on Rick's career, and his career was very impressive. If you have a child who is thinking about a career in science or who dreams of being an astronaut or a pilot, they should read that article. He had a truly charmed and exciting career in both the military and in the commercialization of space. Because you won't get to meet Rick Searfoss personally, I want to share a couple of behind-the-scenes stories about Rick and the Rocket Days that we ran with him at the Heart of Leaders program. As part of Rocket Day, our folks got to build rockets with Rick. He is the consummate engineer and is exceptionally meticulous, as you'll learn in this podcast. One of the reasons he was so sought after as a test pilot was because of his exceptional knowledge of every aeronautical system and his unique ability to report exceptionally detailed specifics about any variance in any system. At the program, Rick and I were standing on the firing line, and one of the teams was racing to get their rocket launched quickly to beat the other team. Rick took one look at their rocket and immediately spotted a critical flaw that would cause their mission to fail. He went over to tell their leader about it. As he was in mid-explanation, an eager team member hit the launch button and their rocket soared skyward in a blast of smoke. Rick looked at me, and then at the leader, and then at the rocket reaching its zenith. He let loose with hilarious laughter and said, Well, then again, I could be wrong. The whole group had a great laugh, and then Rick said, That's why I love being a test pilot. The most unconventional things sometimes work. That's where the breakthroughs come from. That evening over tacos and beer, Rick sat with our explorers answering every question and telling stories about his incredible adventures in space. We had gotten up at 4 a.m. to get ready for the day, and Rick had gotten a little sleep the night before. He also had a 6 a.m. flight the next morning, but he never whined or waned. He gave that group every moment of leadership training that he could. At 10.30 p.m., he was still going strong, and no one had left. I was toast, and I called it a night. I don't know how late that gathering went, but Rick was giving every bit of love he could to that group. That was the way Rick did everything in his life. He will be deeply missed. Godspeed, Colonel Surfoss. We recorded Rick's interviews for our podcast several months ago. The first one follows. Our guest today is Colonel Rick Searfoss, fighter pilot, test pilot, astronaut, shuttle commander, and space cowboy who's working on the commercialization of space. Rick is the commander for the most successful shuttle mission in NASA history, achieving over 150% of the mission's stated goals. Rick's an extraordinary leader who is also an authentic, humble, 
heart-led leader. In this episode, we're going to get to know Rick. In our next episode, we're going to get to hear some of his best stories and get his views on heart-led leadership. Welcome, Rick. Well, hi, Rick. How are you today? I'm doing great, and uh, it's uh, great to be on with you. Well, thank you. I, I, I was thinking as I was reading the introduction, I don't really know what a space cowboy is. I know that's not a technical term, but <laughs> where, where did it come from? I guess that's, uh, I would imagine it came from the movie. Once you reach a certain amount of seniority, to put it euphemistically, you go into the space cowboy category as opposed to being the young buck conquering the world. <laughs> I see. All right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Well, my, actually, my dad was uh, a pilot in the Air Force, so uh, moving around to different Air Force bases all around the United States. Uh, we ended up uh, though going up to New Hampshire on the coast there, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. There was a base there that's since been closed. I uh, went from fifth grade all the way through high school there, um, followed basically during the time of the Apollo there, and just uh, it was a really cool time uh, while stuff was going on with my dad in the Air Force. and. The piloting stuff, I was watching these guys uh, fly to space, and I realized after uh, some point, probably in third grade or so, that, hey, they're Air Force pilots just like my dad, or Air Force, Marine, Navy, and maybe this astronaut thing something I could do someday. So how did you pursue that at age, what would you say, age eight? I was, yeah, I was uh, pretty young when I uh, got fired up by the dream. I was actually always most uh, most enthralled by the test flying and the things like the X-15 and all the stuff that went on out at Edwards Air Force Base. And when I connected the dots and saw that all those astronauts were really military aviators, that really cemented it for me. Uh, and I had done very well in school right from the start, loved math and science. I sussed out pretty quickly that that's what it took in order to... Uh, become the test pilot and then have those kind of opportunities. So just one thing led to another. I set my sights on the Air Force Academy when I was in seventh grade. I picked what my college major was going to be about that same time. I never wavered from that. Um, major in aeronautical engineering, so all things to do with flight and fluid flow and uh, fluid physics and uh, things that affect how an airplane uh, operates and flies. And uh, Stuck with that academically all the way through a master's degree, then off to Air Force pilot training, and you know, one step at a time along the way. So the the Air Force pilot training, what what was the focus of that? Well, that was uh, so I, I spent four years undergraduate at the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy, one of our three uh, ser uh, premier service academies in the country, uh, after West Point in Annapolis, uh, and graduated there with a, a degree. Went down to. Caltech for a master's degree. I, I got a National Science Foundation fellowship. And that uh, kind of set the stage with the academic background, with the engineering background at a master's level. Then off to pilot training was um, it's a year-long program uh, the Air Force operates. You don't necessarily have to have a technical degree to do it, but eventually if you want to become a test pilot, you must. Uh, but uh, you just begin, you know, back in my day, we flying the T-37 little jet straight wing you know, it's a jet. We kind of call it the flying dog whistle because it was very loud and whistly kind of <laughs> noise, but pretty easy to fly. Not Mind you, not so much when you're just basically coming off the street with uh, 20 hours of uh, Cessna time and, and starting. So it was a real challenge, but midway through the course, you finish that, and you're kind of getting the hang of what it's like to fly airplanes, and they toss you in the T-38, nicknamed the Little White Rocket, which uh, things happen very fast in that. It's, it's kind of like... Uh, you know, with afterburners and 
and supersonic aircraft and so forth and uh, step through that. And for those of us that had aspirations to go on to become a fighter or attack pilot needed to do very well in that. We did a lot of formation and uh, uh, low-level navigation and then all of the instrument work and just very, very in- intense program to get through. And it's it's really, although they've changed some of the airplanes now, T- they still use T-38s for those who get selected midway through to go on to, to become fighter pilots. Uh, it is... Uh, it's just an intense one-year formulation to get through to the point where you can go out to an operational squadron and, you know, granted you're inexperienced at that time, you need to be supervised pretty well, but begin to contribute to uh, the defense of our great nation. Uh, but that's really just, that's the foot in the door. You know, I when I graduated from pilot training, I had a few hundred hours, and I spent uh, seven years operationally flying the F-111 attack aircraft got accepted to uh, test pilot school, pretty competitive uh, process to get into that. And the Air Force sent me off to test pilot school with the Navy. So I flew in an exchange program with uh, naval aviators. So what are the test pilots testing exactly? Well, it's think of it this way. The, the test pilot job is a hybrid job. You're part uh, pilot, whether you come from a heavy, big airplane background or a fighter attack background like me. And you have to have the engineering background because you're the one, ones who, you know, speak with the engineering members on the team, and you have to understand the, the tech, uh, technology, and the uh, academic side of it a whole lot more than an operational pilot because you're just you're you're the ones that test new systems out, test new airframes or modifications to airframes that might affect uh, the flying qualities, uh, propulsion systems, everything. These days, most of the test revolves around systems. You know, we're so systems intensive in all of our military aircraft. That's all computerized now, right? No. Well, uh, sure. Computers are on everything, but they're still very much human in the loop both operating those systems and flying the jets, because like you speak of, just for one example, an, an F-22 Raptor or the newest one, the F-35, they're fly-by-wire, they call it, so computers are very much in the mix and very necessary to fly in the regimes they fly, but it's still a human that's uh, controlling and flying, and you can hook up the autopilot if you're just cruising one place to another, but the tactical dynamic parts of those missions, those military missions, are very much flown by very well-trained and disciplined and experienced pilots. Um, so the test pilots are the ones that, you know, they they come into that school. You begin test pilot school being a very experienced operational pilot, um, and then you go through, uh, it's like going back for another master's degree. In fact, the United States Air Force Test Pilot School uh, awards a master's degree at the end of the year in flight test engineering in addition to designating the graduates as test pilots or the engineers that go through flight test engineers. Uh, and also we sometimes send non-pilot air crew members through like uh, navigators or combat, the Air Force now calls them CSOs, combat system operators, because they need to be in, in very much involved with evaluating systems and developing new weapons and so forth. So very, very complex, very intense technology uh, very intense uh, operations and, you know, some of what you do uh, as a test pilot, some pretty, um, I won't call it wild flying because it's very, very disciplined, but it is very, very challenging fly, uh, flying to get to test points and do the things that are necessary to ring the system down. So they're giving you a list of things to go test and you're kind of going through the checklist and seeing how they work and giving feedback. Yeah, and, and typically the pilots are very involved with the engineers in the, in the planning process up front. 
Um, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of resources and money involved and, and people to, uh, to do this right. When you take a big program like the F-35, which is the latest one that's still going through flight tests, uh, you know, just huge amounts of resources to develop systems like that. And, you know, the projections for this would be flown by many, many different nations, um, many hundreds, if not thousands of aircraft uh, built and procured over the years. And it all starts, um, you know, once a design is out and then you've got a actual uh, piece of hardware out there, it really starts with the testers who validate it and uh, bring it along and then turn it over to the operators, the uh, operational people who use it uh, to, again, defend our great nation. So you mentioned fly-by-wire. <clears throat> that whole concept scares me to death, given that I've got 11 million frequent <laughs> flyer miles. Um, <laughs> well, if, if it scares you to death, don't fly on <laughs> Wouldn't you really have a, a real wire instead? <laughs> uh, yes and no. I'll just give you one example why you might, might say no to that. I've got about 2,000 hours flying the T-38, the little white rocket they call it. That's what the astronauts fly around in for their mission support. And um, it has cables and, and uh, connections, actual physical connections with the flight controls uh, through hydraulics and other systems. Uh, but those systems and the cables and the hyd hydraulic lines and all that run right back by the engine bay, and there's warnings right in the flight manual. Um, in Air Force flight manuals, you have warnings, cautions, and notes. Warnings are like, you better read this one because if you, if you screw this one up, you could easily die. Cautions are, you better read this one because if you screw this one up, you can hurt some equipment. And notes are, okay, this will expand your knowledge and understanding, but it's not nearly as important as the cautions and warnings. But there's plenty of warnings about, you know, if you've got an, an engine fire, for example, uh, don't delay in shutting down if that's called for. Sometimes if you just bring it to idle, that will suffice and the light will go out. But if it's called for shutting the engine down, don't delay because uh, that stuff that could be burning back there, there's all the flight control uh, stuff that goes by it and you lose control, then you're ejecting or crashing. You know, no other options at that point. So, so, so in the fly-by-wire, yeah. is, it, is it like Wi-Fi? I don't know. That's just... No, 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 no. It's not. Um, no, it, it's still physical wires oh, okay. with multiple, multiple redundancy. In other words, you put an input in at the stick and there's um, transducers or sensors that tell what the input the pilot puts in. It runs into flight control computers and all of those airplanes that, you know, triply or quad, quadruply redundant, like the space shuttle had five main flight control computers. Uh, one of them ran a completely different set, independently developed software in case there was some sort of generic software fault that even after all the thousands and thousands of hours testing might have reared its ugly head. So you could go to the whole backup uh, software. But the other four computers were all running in parallel and they were error checking. And if, you know, if any one of them, you know, uh, had a problem and, and turned upside down, so to speak, it would be cut out of the system. And it's the same in airplanes. When you get on an Airbus, for example, most of those are, well, they're, they're fly-by-wire very much into that kind of technology. Uh, Boeing's a little less so. Um, Boeing's are great pieces of hardware, 737, you know, 47, 77, 777, all of those. A um, little bit different design philosophy than Airbus. And I've I've flown both in qualitative evaluations as a test pilot, though, although I don't have a lot of time in big airplanes at all. And uh, for my money, I, I like Boeing's, but I'll hop on the back of an Airbus when I'm going someplace to speak. No problem. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. So when did you first discover the importance of leadership? Like where in that trajectory did you say, hey, leadership might be important? I think I started to get a clue on that when I was in Scouts, actually, I mean, as, as a kid. And, uh, I've always been someone pretty intense, um, and I like to get things accomplished. I hate to waste time, and anything I do, I don't want to be just puttering around, you know. And I found that in Scouting, that um, in the patrol method, I think is what the Scouts, well, I, I know that's what the Scouts call it. Yeah. Um, if your patrol and group of guys wanted to get something done and and have fun along the way, it took some leadership, and you had to work together as a team. And uh, uh, I had some great experiences in scouting that brought me along with that. And then along the way, I saw the example of my father, who was a an officer and a commander in the Air Force. And then, but that was you know one step removed as a dependent, just kind of seeing it from the outside. But really, it was when I went off to the Air Force Academy. That's a, a four-year leadership laboratory. Um, it's a national, those three service academies, plus, uh, the Coast Guard Academy, it's a smaller, but it's still, you know, one of our service academies and even the Merchant Marine Academies, those are national treasures in my view. If you look at historically the people who have come out of those great institutions and what they've, the service they've given our nation in, in wartime or in peacetime, uh, in the military or post-military, what they've done, or for example, NASA and Mike, his many service academy graduates there. Uh, but from day one, you're seeing examples of leadership, some better than others, With other, and the cadets are leading virtually everything with the guiding hand and hopefully mostly shadow leadership from the officer corps there, but bringing them along so that uh, you know when they step out, they can be the best possible second lieutenants that uh, the academy can produce with the eye that many of them eventually will become senior officers. Uh, the current chief of staff of the Air Force, uh, David Goldfein, four-star general, is an 83 graduate, I believe, from the academy. Uh, his big brother was actually in my class and, and a great leader himself. Uh, my class produced uh, four space shuttle commanders, the most astronauts of any class of any university, and all four of us happened to be commanders, so we, we did well in that. We The class produced 35 general officers, uh, three Thunderbirds, uh, and then people who served with great distinction and leadership in all sorts of roles uh, serving our country. Uh, so the really criticality of leadership really came out during my years at the, in the academy and then followed up with leadership opportunities at, at all sorts of levels in my military career. So who was your first like big mentor who really took you under their wing and showed you what leadership was all about? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I had many, of course, and many. Uh, well, who's and someone, the one that stands up? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, two that will stand out because they're slightly coming at it from slightly different angles, so to speak. Uh, one was my academic advisor at the Air Force Academy, who I met when I was a freshman. I declared my major on the first day you could declare a major because <laughs> I absolutely knew what I wanted to be, and I rolled in there, and uh, you know, I'm this skinny, hundred and forty-five pound dually is what they call freshmen at the Air Force Academy, and I. And their aeronautical engineering major was probably the hardest major they have there. Astronautical engineering is maybe tied for that, but very tough major. And I rolled in there, said to the secretary, I showed up and said to the secretary, I want to declare my major. And she says, well, awful early, aren't you? Well, I know what I want to do. They said we could do it. <laughs> and she said, okay, let me find one of the officers around. And uh, she found at the time Major Fabian, John Fabian, and he sat down with me and he said, well, you know, this is probably the toughest major at the academy. 
you just finished one semester. Are you sure you're up for this? What, what kind of grades did you get for first semester? I go, well, sir, I got a 4.0. Is that good? <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> he goes, oh, we, he goes, we can talk. <laughs> and uh, I signed up for the major, stuck with it, and he became my advisor. Um, and just a great leader and example, brilliant man, uh, an Air Force pilot, but also with a PhD uh, from a great school, University of Washington in uh, aeronautical engineering. And it's a great example for me. And then I graduated in 1978, which coincidentally was the year they hired the first space shuttle astronauts, uh, you know, hired specifically to be in the space shuttle. It was the class that Sally Ride was in and so forth, uh, ground-breaking class. Well, John Fabian um, applied for the position that time and, and got accepted. In fact, he was the the oldest or most senior guy, and he became the class leader of that group in 78. And I had already worked with him for three years. In fact, in my <laughs> in my selection interview, just many years later, uh, three, two or three of his classmates from that 78 group were on the selection board, and somehow it came out about him being the advisor. Well, he actually wrote a recommendation for me because, you know, he had worked closely with me when I was a cadet. And uh, one of them said, well, how, how do you know Colonel Fabian? And I explained everything. And, and, but I led off my comments and said, well, actually, I've known him longer than any of you have <laughs> <laughs> because I first met him in 75. But uh, So he was a, an incredible mentor. Then the other one uh, on really specifically the military leadership side was my commanding officer uh, when I was a cadet. We called him Air Officer Commandings. Uh, his name was... Uh, <laughs> was uh, Chef, uh, Major Sheffield, uh, Ron Sheffield. Uh, as a cadet, we only ever called him by his rank, you know, Major Sheffield. But he was actually an Army officer on exchange uh, as an Air Officer commanding uh, and instead of an Air Force officer. And that was really a unique and different thing. And he just, I wouldn't say he marched to the beat of a different drummer, but he definitely knew uh, his priorities and he he wasn't cowed, so to speak, by being in the Air Force system. He had had three combat tours flying Apache attack helicopters in Vietnam. He had kind of seen it all, you know, and he just modeled the courageous kind of call it like it is, be there, be be a present, uh, engaged leader in, in everything he did. And interestingly enough, I've been able to stay in touch with him through the years as well. After he retired from the Army, he went to work for Lockheed Martin, and he got involved with the Hubble Space Telescope Program. And for many years, nearly 20 years, he was involved in the operations side of it as a contractor you know, on the project. And uh, so once I got into the astronaut corps, I reconnected with him, and uh, we have many mutual friends uh, who have worked on the Hubble Program from the astronaut corps side of things. So both great examples. So what one lesson did you learn from each one of those? You could pick one. Well, with uh, John Fabian, it was really, he, he later went on after his time in the astronaut corps to be very instrumental in uh, kicking off an organization that's known as the Association of Space Explorers, which is international and uh, very much a Russian presence in it too because of you know, many cosmonauts and flyers. And he was instrumental in getting that going and building these relationships with the Russians uh, up to that point, we we had had the uh, 
1975 Apollo-Soyuz test project where they did a joint mission with the Russians, but there wasn't much connection between astronauts and cosmonauts. And I'd say that the global thing I learned from him and watching all those interactions in that is, you know, the importance of building relationships and of, uh, of using your imagination to think what might be when it comes to relationships. Because think about it, he was a, a cold warrior, <laughs> so to speak, in his background in the Air Force, and yet moved beyond that and uh, very highly respected in the international space community and with Russian cosmonauts as well as U.S. astronauts. So definitely learned that from him. Uh, from uh, Ron Sheffield, uh, many, many things, but I'd, I'd have to say uh, just probably the, the biggest thing he modeled was courage under fire, uh, and that's in his case, very much case, direct fire in the thick of it, being an attack helicopter pilot in uh, Vietnam. I mean, the stories he had, which he told very humbly, but very straightforward. He left, you know, all the details in were just amazing. And that's the way he lived his life, too. It wasn't really under fire, so to speak, under the, the peacetime pressures uh, of a commander and so forth. But uh, but he still modeled that same sort of thing. He called it like he saw it. He was upfront. He was honest, the highest integrity, uh, just a, a perfect model all the way around of what a leader should be. Guy you could trust uh, with your life, you know. That's great. So did you have any super close calls as a test pilot? I uh, actually, my closest calls came when I was an operational pilot. Uh, <laughs> F, uh, yeah, because uh, as an attack pilot or a fighter pilot, yeah, it's some pretty demanding flying. And uh, it's, it's necessary to train to the level you need, you know, if, if you're called into action. And when I was flying F-111s in, in Europe, uh, England specifically was where I was stationed in the early 80s, uh, pretty tense time. You know, we had the Reagan buildup happened a little bit, you know, a lot of rhetoric, of course, with the former Soviet Union. We trained very hard. We, just to give you an example, um, in the three years I was at Lake and Heath, England, uh, we lost six aircraft and wow. uh, two, cr two crews. Uh, four of the crews were able to eject and, and lived, but uh, including two out of my two crews out of my squadron. Um, both of those were materiel failure, and they managed to get out using the ejection system. But we lost my flight commander uh, due to human error. Um, flew into the North Sea one day uh, inadvertently, flying low level. And, you know, we don't, it's just surmising exactly what happened, but it was some kind of an indistinct horizon, and they think he did, distracted attention, and one thing led to another. Pretty certain that's what happened, but you know, that's the nature of the business. Just the training was so intense. Um, so yeah, I had a couple close calls. A couple times I came back and said, "Oh, yeah, I'm kind of glad that played out the way it did." <laughs> uh, a number of engine failures and an engine fire once right after takeoff, and you just do like you're trained, you know, take care of it and get it back on deck safely. And then, uh, you know, and then go from there, uh, assess the lessons learned. Uh, the one that's perhaps most memorable to me, well, it's, it's not as memorable as the actual fire I had. That's more serious than just a plain engine failure. But I did have an engine failure that with the wing commander on my wing. So I was a brand new flight lead and uh, I'm there in the squadron, and the scheduler goes to me, hey, Sir Foss, uh, the wing commander's coming down. So this is the guy, I mean, he's the overall head of the whole base, everything. You know, very experienced colonel. Our particular wing commander had flown wild weasel F-105s in Vietnam, just, you know, seen about everything. Uh, an incredible leader as well. Um, 
but he would go fly on the wing as a wingman of some of the you know, brand new flight leads, the young captains and so forth, and just see how they're doing, just kind of take the pulse of how each squadron's doing and how the individual pilots are doing and so forth. So obviously the pressure's on when that happens. It's as, uh, I prepare for that every bit as much as if it was an actual formal check ride. I uh, got through the briefing just fine. Um, we took off and you know no issues at first, uh, but we let down to low al- altitude for our low-level ingress, like we're simulating going to a target. And all of a sudden, there's this boom in the back of my airplane. All the engine instruments wind down on one side. <laughs> uh, so I, I pull up, and I just call At that point, I just sort of went mentally into... I don't want to call it autopilot mode, but just doing as I've been trained. You know, you just step one thing at a time. You don't have a, a, a minute's brain space to be concerned, to be nervous or anything. You're just functioning, you know. So I called him in to get close and take a look at it. I called uh, over there. They had a procedure they call uh, pan, pan, pan. It's it's like Mayday, but uh, uh, that alerts them as you pull up uh, like that, okay, this person's going to need uh, radar vectors to get to a suitable landing field and all that. You tell them what kind of aircraft you have. And there was a Scottish, an RAF base in Scotland uh, on my nose by about 30 miles or so, so we started heading that way. Uh, that 30 miles goes pretty quick, on speed, so we got through the checklist real quick. You want to get it on deck pretty quickly, but not so quickly that you don't do all the checklist steps, you know. So we did all that, stepped it out, dropped uh, dropped in and landed, uh, like cleared the wing commander off and uh, he said well we'll see you back at lake and he's captain oh yes sir but um it ended up uh it all worked out great we we had to stay up there for a couple three days while they got the maintenance crews up and brought they uh transported the engine up by ground transport and replaced the engine then i flew the jet back but when i got back uh, then uh the squadron operations officer said, hey, Sir Fuss, wing commander wants to see you. So I, I went on over there, and he just, you know, kind of debriefed it with me and said, you know, that was, you handled that really well, Captain. Well, well thanks, sir. I appreciate that. And, you know, we had a good discussion. And it was a, a mentoring opportunity for him. Um, I felt really good coming out of that. And so I thought, you know, now's my chance to ask. Because even then, I knew I wanted to be a test pilot, and he had been a test pilot, and in addition to all the other stuff he had done. Uh, so I mentioned that to him and said, would you mind a couple of years from now when I get enough experience and can apply to be a test pilot, would you write a recommendation for me? And he said, sure, I'd love to. I mean, I saw firsthand how you handled things, so uh, we'll take care of that for you. And I, Thanks, sir. And very, very true to his word. And, you know, I, I don't know if that made a difference or not getting into test pilot school, but it certainly did not hurt. Yeah, uh, so grateful for that. So who do you think is the most amazing leader of our time? Oh, that's pretty incredible. Uh, I mean, how do you pin that down? Um, actually, maybe we should go with uh, gut calls and first impressions. Uh, for some reason, <laughs> I, I thought of both. I, I, I thought of both Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa at the same time, simultaneously. That's wow. kind of interesting. I, I just heard another quote for, about or something attributed to Mother Teresa a couple of days ago. So maybe that was on my mind. But if you think of the kind of leadership they exercised, both of them, very much by humble example, right? Yep. Uh, living a life that uh, people uh, would model, even if they wouldn't necessarily agree on it, they could all very clearly understand how the epitome of integrity uh, in both cases. You know, uh, the quote actually the the that was attributed to Mother Teresa. The situation was, you know, she. Um, 
someone was sort of starting to lionize her a little bit. She said, no, I, I am just an instrument in God's hand. That's all. I am just like the pencil that is being used. Now, I would hasten to say that by her exercising her own free will to serve others so selflessly that she was more than just a pencil, but the concept of being a tool uh, for to do good for others was you know was very powerful and that's a powerful leadership thing you know whether or not you approach it from a, a religious or a spiritual background uh, or from a background that just doing the right thing by people uh, in your team uh, it's it's powerful so they're both great examples but they're certainly far from unique really thank you that's great so what are your passions outside of work I know you're a hiker well. Yeah, and so flying always, and so you know, I even <laughs> extrapolate that to model airplanes. I fly radio control airplanes. I've been doing that for 35 years, and pretty accomplished in that. Do a lot of extreme aerobatics and stuff. It's just great fun. Uh, I keep my hand in that. A uh, couple years ago, I had to, st- I just kind of uh, back off on some of my running. I was passionate about running uh, the years and did well in local races and those kind of things. But just uh, with the joints and all, I decided I'd better, you know, kind of shift over to cycling. And I've really enjoyed that. Um, at kind of the seniors level, uh, I do pretty well at the, at the centuries and the hill climbs and stuff around here. And I live in a great area for it. Uh, I can go out my uh, front driveway. Well, I live out in a gated community in the in the hills, Sierra foothills, actually, in Southern California. And uh, there's not much traffic once you get on the two main roads in and out. So I can get up uh, and do a 2,200-foot climb at a 10% grade uh, straight out of my driveway, you know. And so that is a great way to stay in shape and just absolutely love it. Yeah, well, you you're in fabulous shape last time I saw you. Well, so it's, it's good fun. Keeps the energy levels high. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have to talk about the radio control thing because that's one of my passions too. So we'll, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that after. So what career advice would you give our listeners who want to be heart-led leaders? Yeah, well, I would, you know, I was so gratified recently when a, a pretty senior leader, a uh, high-tech leader who booked me to come in to speak to the, uh, his company, <laughs> and he's in IT, but just before the speech, <laughs> he sent me an email on his private line. He said, oh, by the way, um, after having read your book, I decided I'm going to go for it. And I go, go for what? And he goes, I'm, gonna re- I'm resigning from this company, the company that booked me. They still brought me in for the speech. And it's all on great terms and everything, but I had just this opportunity to go for it to become a CTO, chief technical officer for this startup. And it's, I'm, I'm going to shake myself up. I'm going to challenge myself. And, uh, and he's, by no means a young guy. I mean, he's in his 50s, pretty senior, quite comfortable and doing quite well where he was, but he's just going for it. So I guess I had an influence on him. We'll, we'll talk to him a year or two now, from now and you know, see how it all went and everything. Um, but the advice I would um, extrapolate and give generically is kind of the advice or what he picked up on from my book is that uh, just choose to do difficult things. You know, whether you're entry level in a, in a job or you've been at it a while and you think, you know, reinventing yourself, we use that term quite a bit. I don't care for that particular term that much because it's sometimes overused and almost like we're forced into that. Yeah. But I think we need to be the ones forcing the issues constantly, you know, with ourselves and our own careers, within our organizations, recognizing that leaders 
need to be agents for change because you're, you're never quite perfect. So at the very least, you need to be changing that last little, little increment to be perfect in whatever your execution and, and operations are, you know. Uh, but that, that concept of going for it, choosing the hard, uh, you know, never slacking off. And, and you're, you're doing that yourself. You just got a new job. Well, I am. I'm doing double duties now. Still be doing some speaking, but I've uh, consciously decided to uh, go back uh, to a full-time test flying job. Uh, I have yes, yes, I know, and I'm I'm pretty jazzed about it. I've been doing part-time flight tests through the years, uh, and some flight test instruction at a civilian test pilot school called the National Test Pilot School. It's the only, uh, you know, real significant test pilot, civilian test pilot school in the country. Um, so, you know, I'm basically sort of changing the mix up of my professional activities from, uh, 75, 80% speaking, consulting, doing some writing, you know, when I got my book out and so forth into more back to the 80 to 90% of, okay, go to work, but I'm flying cool jets and I'm still wearing a G suit at age 61 and I have health to do all that. Thank goodness. You know, and, uh, it's, I do recognize that this doesn't last forever. <laughs> this kind of uh, the demands that are on you cognitively and physically flying those jets, but um, just fine to do it now. And as, as long as they'll have me and I can contribute, I want want to do that and still throw the speeches and the opportunities to serve others through my message uh, into the mix from time to time. Also, well, excellent, Rick. It was uh, great chatting with you today, and uh, we're going to have you come back and uh, talk about heart-led leadership. Okay, great. Hey, thank you, Rick. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.